Did you know that jazz music originated in the African-American communities of New Orleans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about music, culture, and community with historian and author Dr. Guthrie Ramsey on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the world of music with writer, pianist, composer, and professor emeritus, Dr. Guthrie Ramsey. But first, a trivia question. What is bebop? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Guthrie Ramsey on the show today. A Guggenheim Fellow and member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Dr. Guthrie P. Ramsey Jr. is a music historian, pianist, composer, and professor emeritus of music at the University of Pennsylvania. A widely published writer, he's the author, co-author, or editor of four music history books and many essays and articles. His works include Race Music, Black Cultures from Bebop to Hip Hop, and The Amazing Bud Powell, Black Genius, Jazz History, and the Challenge of Bebop. He is the founding editor of the blog Musicology.com. As a producer, label head, and leader of the band Dr. Guy's Musicology, Ramsey has released five recording projects and has performed worldwide. He has written for and consulted with museums and galleries, and he has lectured on music nationally and internationally. When I learned about Guthrie's vast music background, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Guthrie will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Guthrie. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you. You have such an accomplished background as a music historian, professor, author, and musician. It's difficult for me to know where to start, but I would like to ask you, what do you think is the most interesting thing about you? I think the most interesting thing about me is how curious I am about all things. And I believe I have the, uh, if I said I had one gift, it would be the ability to pursue my curiosities. I love that. And you certainly have pursued them in many directions throughout your wonderful career or multiple careers, I should say. I often do think about what I have uh, done as existing in different lanes. And uh, a big part of the work of doing these things is how to think about consolidating for others, you know, what it is that you do. Because when you're in a lot of different lanes, people uh, tend to get a little confused. You know, they want you to do one thing. But what I found is as I pursued my curiosities, not only have I had to learn about different things, but I also had to teach others how to make myself legible to them. 
how do you normally describe uh, yourself and the experiences that you've had to date? I always like to lead off that I'm a musician and that that's where it all began for me because I, I think that's fundamentally who I am and fundamentally who I was put on earth to be. And everything else has been kind of additive or in some ways allowing me to uh, pursue this uh, musical practice that has just fascinated me for my entire life. And it looked like when I was doing some um, research to get ready for this podcast that you had attended a performing arts high school. Is that true? Oh, no, it was a regular, you know, township high school. It's just back in the day when during the 70s, where a music education and art education was just part of what you did on a daily basis. And uh, so it was free and open to all. And if you wanted to pursue things a little more deeply, the educators that I was around then made it possible for me to you know, go deeper and and some of my colleagues to go deeper into, you know, different aspects of musical training. And I think it's such a a problem that that seems to be lost in most most cases these days. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. So who were some of your early inspirations as a budding musician? I always have to name the musicians that I had access to. Often when you ask people who are your favorite musicians or who have been your most influential musicians. They'll name people who are mass mediated or who have, you know, gotten a a lot of attention for what it is that they do and known by many. But I have to say the, the musicians who have had the strongest impact on me have been, I remember at 12 years old taking music theory lessons. I don't even remember this musician's name. But uh, he taught a 12-year-old, a curious 12-year-old, about music theory as and as it related to jazz harmonies. And I just thought it was the, you know, as most nerds, <laughs> I thought it was the most fantastic thing I had ever run into. Uh, I had teachers in high school who took special interest and understood that I didn't always have the means to pay for, you know, the extra things that came along with, uh, you know, my curiosities, and they would pay for lessons for me because they saw the interest. And uh, Mrs. Karen French, Richard Campbell, Todd McFadden, Claire Boyce, these people that I remember well, and many of whom I'm still in touch, by the way, were just fundamental to my music education and then my college professors and things like that. And then always, there's always these really gifted and talented and focused musicians since I was in high school that I remember, even before then, junior high, remembering these people that I really were my peers that I just thought this is so inspirational to me to see them doing their thing. And now I understand that you are giving back to the community by directing a choir that your granddaughter is in? Well, this was pre-pandemic, I have to say. It was going strong. And then we're still reorganizing our, you know, live uh, musical experiences with youth. Yeah, but that was certainly one of the things that I I did is to be over the, you know, I started out with adults helping me out when I was, uh, you know, a little tyke. And I've done the same with my children. And now I'm starting over with my uh, grandchildren, you know, uh, 
I have a cellist and a violinist among them and uh, working on the rest of them. <laughs> and you often perform with your daughter, Bridget, and your son, Robert. Is that true? Well, not so much with Robert, uh, but with uh, with Bridget. Yeah, we've made some recordings and uh, we have uh, Robert and I are uh, musically involved. He he raps and makes beats and he's we're in a continual musical exchange that we've been that's been ongoing since he was three and now he's 38 so you could t- <laughs> this is this is how i i created my best musical friends by procreating and then convincing them <laughs> that, that music was just the best thing ever invented and <laughs> and i have a, a, a built-in and it's really gone down to my grandchildren too that I can always get someone to attend a concert with me. I can always get someone to uh, have a musical conversation with me. But the one who's taken it the furthest is my daughter, Bridget, who has, uh, uh, she trained as a coloratura soprano. And we have recorded several projects and uh, I'm about to release another record. And she is uh, a singing background on that. You know, she's a, a young mother with very young children age two and eight months. And that somehow has cut into her uh, musical activities. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Somehow she's just slowed down a little bit. Um, You've stated more and more what this moment is for me is legacy, recovering the American Black histories that have not been told. Can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. You know, often we pay close attention to the music that is the most mass mediated and the most readily available to us. And that is true of all musics. And I think it's particularly true of African-American music. What I have tried to do in my many years of being a professor about these things and being a musician myself and also being a, a music historian is to tell stories of African-American musicians that you may not readily run into. For instance, in the 19th century, there were many uh, Black musicians who were heavily involved in uh, musical theater and pioneers in that in that arena, or they were music journalists, and, and the list goes on. And some of those people have been lost to history, and I'm just one of the uh, historians out here try to, to try to dig up those stories and tell them in a compelling way. What was particularly helpful for me as a uh, as a professor, that is with students who uh, show up to my classes, is to try to get the students to understand that what they are actively engaged in in the present has a, a historical narrative, that it didn't just pop up into their uh, playlist, that there are histories that you are listening to, there are legacies that you're listening to, and that uh, knowing about these things don't make that music that you're listening to less enjoyable, <laughs> that it actually enhances your uh, musical experience by understanding these histories. And so let's talk a little bit about the book that you edited and wrote the forward for. It's called The Heart of a Woman, The Life and Music of Florence B. Price. It's a first ever biography of a pioneering African-American composer. What did you find most fascinating about her and her work? Well, that book was written by my dearly departed 
friend, the great musicologist Ray Linda Brown, who discovered Florence Price's, one of her symphonies, while she was doing another research project at the Beinecke Library at Yale University. And she had never heard of this woman, Florence Price. And it turned out that she was a very, very big deal in the late 1920s, early 1930s, when she was the first Black woman composer to have a major work programmed by a, a major United States orchestra. And, okay, so there's the, the story right there that would compel anyone. And what I did is after uh, Ray Linda passed away, she had this book and I was in touch with her sister. And we just made sure that the book was prepared for an audience. And I wrote a foreword to kind of uh, think about where this uh, the book itself, Ray Linda Brown's career, as well as Florence Price's illustrious, you know, body of work fits into the larger American uh, story. And uh, I'm happy to say that uh, there is a Florence Price resurgence right now that a, a woman who passed away in 1952 or 53, I think, is now her- heard uh, all the time in uh the major orchestra houses throughout the throughout the world, really. You've stated that music can express sentiments for us when words fail. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. One of the things that's really powerful about music is that it's uh, as an abstract language, and I'm thinking now of instrumental music, let's say, that it is able to uh, convey there's so many meanings to us. And it achieves this through the through the repetition. So if you're a child and you're uh, watching cartoons and every time something scary, negative or suspenseful happens and the music plays a diminished chord, you begin to associate that sound organization with a set of emotions or a set of narrative experiences that have been generally repeated and repeated and repeated so that your reaction to that to that sound organization becomes automatic it becomes something that you're not even it's unconscious so if you have a, a, a powerful medium like that that can convey and absorb meanings that it may have not necessarily been planned in the beginning about that, but through repetition, it becomes so. That becomes a metaphor for how we experience uh, music writ large, that we are always, when we engage a musical object, we are always engaging it with all of the social and cultural experiences that we've had. And we're meeting it up with and, and joining it into this cultural transaction so that even no matter if the, the composer or the musician has this set of meanings in mind, when it joins another human being with their own set of assumptions, you get a big explosion of meanings. And it, it really is uh, quite addicting to uh, have that experience. And not only that, when we sit in an audience with other people, who are having similar or even dissimilar experiences, there is a social bond that is recreated among the people in that musical experience, listening to those sound waves in their bodies at the same time. That becomes a very, very strong social force. And so much of my work as a music historian has been 
trying to get my students and my readers to understand this transaction as a part of the human experience. Wow, that's just incredible. It's so powerful. And I've I've found it interesting that they've done experiments where they will take a movie trailer and remove the original music and replace it with music from another genre. And it completely changes the experience of what people even believe that the genre of the movie is. I I really love those experiments because uh, I would often start my music uh, history classes with two examples, Doris Day's 1950s pop song, Que Sera Sera, and I would put it on, you know, it's got the the mandolin and the strings and uh, the very, her very clear and exacting, you know, performance of those lyrics. And, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, the future is not ours to see, que sera, sera. And then I would ask the students what those words meant in that context. And then I would play them a Sly and the Family Stone rendition of that same song, which played a, a lot of bluesy gospel and growls and and this whole other musical genre to the same lyrics. And they could see them. Something I asked them, what does that song mean? They would, you know, uh, come up with a totally different set of meanings of what this song means, even though the lyrics were exactly the same. So what I tried to show them in that experiment is that beyond the truth claim of the lyric, when you add in different musical codes, it becomes part of the construction of meaning for audience members. And depending on your experience with whatever genre you are encountering at the the moment will determine partly what you think that music means. I was really sorry to read about your cancer diagnosis. I saw that you said that creating music would be important to your healing. Would you be willing to share more about that experience with us? Sure. Of course, you know, no one likes to hear that word uh, when you go to the doctor. And it was, uh, you know, it, it came out of the blue, there was nothing else going on. And then you get the numbers, you know, and then you get the call. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in a you're in a fight. And what uh, you do with that impulse, I think, is uh, kind of individualistic. And just as a musician, uh, who has understood and taught for many years about the uh, power of the musical experience. That's what, the, you know, the, I grew tomatoes and made music. How about that? <laughs> and uh, I booked the the day, I think two days before that uh, surgery, I booked a recording session because I said I want, I threw a birthday party and I threw a recording session all in one and invited some musicians and we laid down the first tracks for the music that I believed would participate in my healing because, you know, I had, I had faith that I would be healed and I just wanted all the help I could get. And rather than depending on other musicians to provide that soundtrack, I said that I was going to provide my own soundtrack for my fight. And uh, it turned out to be a, a a really important album. And what I and and this, so I was faced with a decision: if I was going to just release that music, which I found very good, and and people were really digging it, was I going to 
tell the truth about why I created it. Because, you know, people have different ways of going about it. Some people are very private about, you know, what they're going through, which is perfectly fine. But I thought it would be important to share honestly with people why I created that that album, because I wanted to give others hope and others a pathway to, uh, you know, find their own way to, to deal with, you know, that particular hardship. And I was very happy I did because the reaction to the music was, uh, I believe, enhanced by the honesty that I attached to it. You know, I could have just let it go and say, oh, aren't these chords beautiful? And isn't this singing wonderful? And just leave it at that. Aren't I great? You know, <laughs> but I, I decided to go another way with it. And uh, I'm happy I did. And so you're in recovery now? Oh, I am cancer free. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah, go me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. So the, it worked. Your healing music worked. Yeah, I just, uh, it's, it's just really fantastic. It's to, uh, you know, that, that, you know, the idea of physical sickness and malady is something that is common throughout the human experience, just as common, in fact, as the musical experience. And I just somehow thought that the the two are uh, joined. One of the things I would say to students who were taking my class is that music can't cure cancer, but it's one of the reasons we want to live. That's beautiful. You've stated when people's nerves are frayed and people feel hopeless and people need reasons to fight for freedom, they listen to music and they look at your videos and get strength and inspiration. Tell us more about that. Well, I come from a tradition of people who listen to music for deep inspiration. I grew up, I was born and you know, raised for the most part in a segregated environment. I was raised by a generation of uh, people who were the civil rights, you know, of fighters, the people who were marching, you know, the people who were in their 30s at the height of their adulthood. And I remember that they were so specific about how they educated us. They wanted us to be fluid and competent in our ideas about, you know, the Black struggle. They wanted us to understand our culture and they wanted us to do everything else that everybody else was doing, you know, math, (laughs) reading, you know, all of that other stuff. So they somehow coupled all of that. There were pianos in the classroom and people would teach you, you know, spirituals and even blues songs and things like that at the same time that they were teaching you geometry and math and 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 those things so those things were always kind of mixed in together and i have always found power in that uh, in those connections and i i wanted to kind of duplicate that in uh, every situation whether it's uh playing live for people or doing a guest lecture i never wanted to defang the the music of that element of power the thing that gave people hope the gave, thing that gave people the fight and what i've learned is rather than divide people people brought their own struggles to the table when I would frame things that way. And so they may not have even been uh, African-American. They may not have been my generation. They may not have been my gender and so on and so forth. But they began to see themselves in the very particular way that I would do things. So they it 
it didn't shut down the conversation. It actually opened it up to the universalisms that everybody is so keen to, to talk about. So I don't think we get to the universal through universal. I think we get to universal through all of our particulars, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. That's one thing that I always talk with my students about, in particular with writing, that the more specific you can be, the more you will be able to touch people with your writing. Absolutely. So is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, I have a new book out called Who Hears Here on Black Music's Past and Present. And it is a collection of uh, 25 years or so of my writing. The first essay, I think, in the book was written in 1996 when I was a young professor climbing the climbing the ladder, you know, and uh, being so diligent. And I think the last essay was written uh in 2019. And it covers uh, a lot of territory from the 19th century to the, the present, lots of topics and uh, stories about Black musicians working and living and struggling and triumphing. You get to encounter all of the different genres of gospel, jazz, blues, uh, classical, hip-hop, film music, and, and it goes on. And you can always... Uh, reach out to me and follow me on my Instagram page, Ramsey Music, and Facebook at Guthrie Ramsey, and uh, Twitter at Dr. Guy Musicology. And I'm always posting things about music and art and my experiences as I go around the planet and chase this, uh, chase the muse, if you will. And you'll, I guess you'll even encounter a grandchild or two in there. <laughs> You know how it is. <laughs> That's awesome. So I will have a link to your website in the show notes and a link to your latest book. Is it available on Amazon? It's available on Amazon at the University of California Press website and wherever fine books are sold. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today, Guthrie. It was wonderful to have you as a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Certainly my pleasure. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. What is bebop? Bebop is a style of jazz that originated in the 1940s in the United States. It is characterized by complex harmony and rhythms and is associated with musicians such as Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, and Dizzy Gillespie. We'll end the show with something punny. What happened when a bus carrying a jazz band broke down on the highway? They created a massive jam. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.